Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. This episode is brought to you by frankenoak.com, where right now you can purchase an outfit, a pair of pants, and a shirt for $65. Head to frankenoak.com slash first time. That's first dash time. This cloud has been hanging over the summer. It all began at the beginning of June when news got around that a very well-loved and well-respected Toronto Star reporter had committed suicide. Word about her death spread quickly within the small industry and the broad details of it went like this. Reporter Ravina Aulak had been having an affair with a senior star editor named John Filson. He was married when it began about five years ago. Filson later left his wife, but began an affair with his boss, Toronto Star managing editor Jane Davenport. When Ravina Allock found out about that, she fell into despair, ultimately taking her own life. In her suicide note, she asked not to be written about. Frank Magazine broke the story, and then mainstream news organizations and Canada Land followed in fits and starts. Strips of safe-to-report information like the departure of John Filson and Jane Davenport from their newsroom jobs, uh, their unexplained departures at first, and then blasts of opinion like Walrus editor John Kay's demand that Ravina's suicide note be released. Kay later also published a piece by John Filson himself that ended with a link to Filson's professional resume on LinkedIn, later removed. Things got very ugly. Journalists yelling at each other on Twitter. Sun columnist Joe Warmington struck a self-righteous pose against the star. Toronto Star columnist Rosie DeMano threatened to, quote, rip his fucking throat out. There was all of this blame and recrimination and score settling. There was a lot more heat than light. And when all of the screaming settled, what did we really know? Too much or too little? None of it has been sitting well. Like I said... A cloud hanging over the summer. Look, with a tragedy like this, affairs, adultery, suicide, there are a couple of things that are more important than satisfying that itch that I think we all have to just know all the details. The first goal is to have some respect to the dead and to the mourners, to give them some privacy and some space. The second goal is to try to figure out if things could have gone differently. 
Were there warnings? Were there chances? Were there systems in place to detect and stop this? And if there were, did they fail? And how? The idea isn't to find somebody to blame, but hopefully to prevent something like this from happening again. And in order to answer those questions, you do need to figure out what happened. And those two goals, trying to be respectful and trying to figure out what happened, they are rarely compatible objectives. Investigating and reporting a story like this is very difficult. Parsing what is private from what is public, what parts are newsworthy, what parts are ethical to report. All of that stuff to consider in addition to just doing the usual job of an investigative reporter, finding out what happened, confirming and verifying that that is what happened, finding sources, all of that, making sure that you have an accurate story. It's just a very hard job. The journalist who did that job this summer is the Financial Post's Sean Craig. His lengthy report on what happened at the Star ran recently, and it did indeed shed more light than heat. For example, for the first time, we learned that this story goes beyond a love triangle, that allegations about improper workplace behavior by John Filson stretch back a decade, a decade during which Filson was promoted at the Star again and again and again, until finally he was put in charge of the high-profile Star Touch tablet app project, a job that saw him in a position of authority over a team of dozens of young journalists. Now, before we go further, I do have some disclosures to make. I briefly worked with the Toronto Star on the Gian Gameshi investigation, and during that time, I worked directly with managing editor Jane Davenport and also with editor-in-chief Michael Cook, whose name you'll also hear in today's conversation. Also, Sean Craig used to work with me here at Canada Land. He joins me in a moment to talk about his investigation. Wait for it. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Vanessa Lamb, Kara Little, Carolyn McNelly, Jonathan Carroll, Darcy Spittle, Ken McKenzie, Jessica Manchak, and John Hampton. John, why did you decide to be awesome? Because I listen every week and I like to support the media that I enjoy. And you've uh, hired great people to report on things from actually within their community. And this episode is brought to you by frankandoak.com, who are the online destination for guys who want to shop smart and look sharp. I find it really convenient to shop online with Frank and Oak, and I like their stuff. I like how it fits. I like the price. And they are offering right now for listeners of this podcast the best deal that they have offered so far. We used to uh, have spots from Frank and Oak where they'd offer you 20% off, but now they are offering you an outfit pair of pants and a shirt for 65 bucks. And the regular value of that is like $115 plus. So this is a really good time to check it out. They're doing it because they think that if you try them, you're going to stick with them. You should take advantage of this offer. It's the fall. You probably need some new clothes. Why not spend a lot less for a nice new outfit? Step up your game stylishly and affordably with frankandoak.com. Here is the URL, frankandoak.com slash first dash time. Check it out. This episode is also brought to you by ShipStation. ShipStation is a solution for people who sell stuff on the internet that they need to ship to their customers. If that's you, then think about ShipStation. It has solved this problem of what do you do when you're selling your stuff a bunch of different places, your own website, Amazon, Etsy, Shopify. You just want to have one spot to check your orders 
It's sucking all of that order data from all those different places. It's spitting out shipping labels that make it as effective and cheap as possible to ship through every shipper available. But one thing that ShipStation also does is it makes sure that your customers get their stuff very quickly. And that's going to impact your ratings, which is what you live and die by if you are in the business of selling stuff on the internet. In the time that it took me to tell you that, you could have signed up for ShipStation and imported all of your orders into your account there. It is the number one choice for online sellers in North America. Why not go and just check it out and try it out right now? Because you can do so for free for 30 days. And for listeners of this podcast, there is a special offer when you go to ShipStation.com, click the microphone at the top of the page and enter the offer code CANADALAND. Check it out to find out what that special offer is. Thank you, ShipStation. Did Ravina want the workplace issues that she faced at the Toronto Star to be exposed and discussed? Uh, that's what she told a couple of her friends who were close with her before she passed away, um, who, who, you know, who passed that information on to us. In one case, we saw it in emails, and in another case, we you know, saw it from a, a source who'd shown us emails that they were in regular contact with her uh, you know, in the months leading up you know, to the weekend that she passed away. So... Yeah, I, you know, I think even in one email, she it's mentioned between her and another star colleague that you know if uh, something like this or behavior like this, inappropriate behavior like this, that's alleged to have taken place, if it had taken place at another media organization, uh, you know, star reporter wrote to her that the the Toronto Star would have reported on this gleefully were the, the words that they used, right? Because the star um, historically, you know, in the last few years, particularly under Michael Cook's tenure, has been such an aggressive paper in terms of reporting on workplace standards um, and labor in this country. Uh, that's you know, and that's one of the things that does make this a story somewhat in the public interest. Is the you know the Toronto Star has done Canada and Canadians a tremendous civic service in all the incredible reporting it has done on workplace environments. Um, it's done incredible reporting in the last year or two on uh, workplace sexism, harassment, and, and uh, you know issues with the reporting structures and, and uh, seniority in the restaurant industry, right? And But what about their own shop? Even in the media, of course, they've looked at the media yep, in these stories. And even after Gomeshi, you know, this is by no means is this a Gomeshi case or anything that, that parallel to that, but post-Gomeshi, you know, the star has reported on harassment and bullying at the CBC. Yeah. Certain stories stories about managers like Heather Conway allegedly bullying other staff. It's written, uh, you know, and we at The Post have published stories, you know, where there have been lawsuits that have come out, um, civil suits in recent months, you know, alleging bullying and harassment there. So the, you know, that side of the issue, the, the labor issue and the workplace issue is, and, that, and, you know, that's where most of the parsing has taken place. Those are the issues that both the, you know, Ravina, the person involved, and just the general narrative of media reporting and labor reporting in the last five years has indicated to us is what's in the public interest, is what's germane. Yes. I'm focused here on uh, what you've added to this, I think, kind of false debate we had earlier in the summer uh, when John Kay called to show us the suicide note. And it was this debate, despite Ravina's interests, we must expose all of this. And it, w it just became assumed that her wishes were that nobody say anything. What your investigation revealed is that she explicitly did want to expose at least the workplace, the alleged workplace abuse, the workplace conditions. That was actually her, her, her desire based on the emails that you quoted in your piece. 
she said it at one time, but you can all, and I, it's why I think the people at the star were in a difficult position because you can also interpret her wishes at the end as to say that nothing should be written, right? That's why everyone was in. At it. the end, she said, "Please don't write about me." But earlier, earlier had said she you know, said she wanted workplace issues uh, to be brought about. You know, she thought that workplace issues were something that should be of the public, uh, the public concern and the public interest. And, and and then you know, outside of this, the public interest should, should there be a news story about this? Uh, you also. I learned through your reporting, you also reported that she wanted other people in the star. So this idea that it was just private between her and, and confidants, she was trying to make an issue out of what she felt were unfair things she had experienced in the workplace. Yes. I mean, uh, whether or not she was trying to make it a formal workplace issue, you know, that is, well, I mean, you, you can read her emails, which we published, right? But she certainly- Well, let's do that But, uh, but I mean, she certainly did, I can say, you know, absolutely, she certainly did contact a number of colleagues, including, you know, not just management, but regular colleagues to inform them of the issues she was facing. Um, and she did speak to, you know, it appears a number of people at the managerial level. She wrote to her direct superior that she would be happy and grateful to go with her to talk to the manager of labor relations, David Callum. That was on May 25th, however, remember, so that was- you know, two days before she passed away. Two days before she took her own life, she wrote to her superior, I would be grateful to talk about what John Filson did to me, to, to, to senior management. Uh, yeah, or at least the issues that she was facing. Okay. And, and, you know, and this comes after a series of emails over the course of a month where, you know, she says, uh, I think in mid-May, that she didn't pledge her manager to secrecy about the things that she told her, right? Which included allegations of inappropriate relationships. Those, you know, those would be the relationships between Filson and colleagues, as well as the allegations that she put in emails about uh, him having a previous inappropriate workplace yeah. relationship with an intern. So she, you know, she said, "I didn't swear my manager to any kind of secrecy about this in an email." Um, and also, you know, previously, as we said in these earlier emails, said when she brought these concerns initially to her manager, was told, um, you know, I don't want to report them because they could affect Jane Davenport, and well, and and you shouldn't say anything to your union, right? Yeah, let's get to that. The the complexity that you introduced into this, because before. Uh, we have to remember how th this has been talked about. When Kathy English, the public head of the Toronto Star, wrote about it, she, she, she called it a, a private tragedy. When John Filson, in his only response about this, wrote in The Walrus about it, the piece was called Private Lives. Both of them said they were going against Ravina's interests. This idea that she had sworn everybody to secrecy and everyone was breaking the sacred trust. In fact, there's a lot more nuance. And this history that Filson has at the Toronto Star is something that she was taking deliberate steps to at least uh, bring to light within the Star. And that's what a lot of your reporting was about. Uh, Filson would not talk to you about his past at the Star and, and his reputation there. Many other people did. And you spoke to, you write, uh, 12 current and former Toronto Star employees. Can you briefly run down what John Filson is said to have done and, uh, you know, I think it's important that it's not just Ravina Allah who says that he was behaving improperly in a professional context in the office. No, but I can say that the basis for that reporting was emails between Ravina and another, you know, former staffer. Were you able to she, verify the what she wrote about? In one case, right? That's where we mentioned, where it's mentioned that one reporter, a number of other colleagues said, you know, alleged, left the paper in part because he was repeatedly mocked and bullied and harassed. Okay, well, let's, let's, let's just describe that. Um, what are these allegations and, and how far back do they go? The allegations would go to, the, you know, the earliest would be um, the mid-2000s, 2007 or eight. 
you know, a similar situation. It's alleged that he had a romantic sexual relationship with an intern who was underneath him a direct report. Uh, that would, you know, that violates conflict of interest rules of the paper. In the 20, same. twenty-two-year-old intern who who directly reported to him, he, and he this, was married. They had an affair, and she verified this to you. Yep, she, she, she confirmed it. She, you know, she said, you know, according to her, the allegations are true. Um, and so that was, you know, so the emails gave us a window into doing that in a second case. Hold on. Um, that, that first case, workplace affair, you know, there's an imbalance of power there. Uh, it's generally frowned upon an intern and a direct superior. In some places, it's, it's outright not allowed. Not necessarily illegal. Uh, d- did, the, did the woman in question feel like she had been abused or bullied in any way in that relationship? In her words, yes. She said she felt bullied and trapped. Uh-huh. Um, and, and, you know, more specifically, and I think relevant to the workplace, said she didn't have the personal or the professional resources to deal with or know how to deal with that kind of relationship. And you're right um, that she, 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 she left basically in the wake of this. Yep. She, she left the paper. Yeah. You're right that somebody else left the profession entirely or said to have left the profession entirely because of how they were treated by John Filson. Yep. That intern was not, uh, you know, that wasn't a sexual matter, but that was the other allegations related to workplace bullying. She said she was mocked. She said her work was mocked, um, yeah. you know, treated in a way that no manager should treat a young person like that. Uh, and this is a pattern that you found mu- multiple, the, you know, the, the bullying, mockery, uh, workplace abuse of various kinds. How many people ultimately told you that John Filson behaved in that way? You know, close to 10 of the dozen that we talked about. And then you can, you know, it should be fair to be fair to him, too, as well. There is one intern who was named in the emails who said, yes, I thought he was a jerk, but I didn't think that his behavior constituted harassment. Yeah. Uh, And another person we spoke to who said, I don't, you know, Filson himself, I don't think was the the biggest problem with the paper. Um, And that I more agree with what the union is saying, which is that there is a broader toxic workplace problem, right? That he's not the worst. Right. Um, He's reflective of a larger... uh... And I can't offer any further comment on that myself, but I can say, you know, it is notable that the union is describing... The union union of employees describes this place as, yeah, as being a toxic place, as being, you know, one that uh, requires an independent third-party review of workplace safety. Yeah. There are people out there who, uh, I think, raise an eyebrow at accusations of uh, harassment and bullying and saying, like, oh, you feel feel like you were harassed and bullied. But I think, you know, can we get more tangible than that in terms of, well, okay, he had affairs or at least, uh, well, he had affairs. We know multiple affairs with people who were in a uh, subordinate position to him at the star. Um, Some of them felt harassed and bullied. Did anyone have like a tangible, like this guy hurt my career in a way that we can actually say, okay, well, yeah, that's improper. Does anyone, does anyone feel that he hurt their career at the star? Well, I've, the enduring bullying and harassment clearly did hurt some individuals' careers. But like, Two he, of them he has the power not. to say, "Don't hire somebody." He has the power to get rid of somebody. Did he ever, to your knowledge, is he accused of having done that? I can't say or can't say not. That falls outside of what you w- w- published in this piece, and, and therefore you can't comment further. Yes. Okay, I understand. One of the most startling revelations uh, in your investigation has to do with the senior most figure at the Toronto Star. John Hondrick, whose family, I think, I think it's just a statement of fact to say, controlled the star for a long time. He's currently the uh, the CEO. Of He's the chair of the Tor chair Star's of, of the board of Torstar, <clears throat> and uh, he comes up when you're really looking at this internal investigation that the star launched, like really immediately after the, the, the death of Ravina Alak. Uh, I think you kind of poked the investigation to see how robust was this investigation, how genuine was it, and one of your anonymous sources told you that they tried to help. 
John Hendrick with this investigation. Okay, and John Hendrick himself said we conducted a serious investigation at the highest levels. So you spoke to this uh, this person who reached out to John Hendrick trying to help with this investigation. And this source of yours says that they emailed John Hendrick and said, I'm in possession of emails from Ravina that will shed light on how she was supported or not supported in the workplace. Would, would no, no. They said that uh, the, the emails contain information of inappropriate behavior. Of inappropriate behavior. Yeah. Okay. And basically offered John Hendrick emails that uh, spoke to this issue of inappropriate behavior. Mm-hmm. Thanks for the clarification. What you write is that this source says that Hondrick did not ask for them to be sent to him, instead said that that falls outside of the scope of the investigation or suggested that the investigation is not concerned. We did, what happened is he didn't explicitly, he didn't resp- you know, explicitly rebuff them or anything, but he said the, all the newspaper was investigating was how the relationships between Filson and Olick and uh, Filson and Davenport affected the work of the individuals involved. That's all he said to them. Two weeks later, they saw a memo, which actually, which Candleland published. Um, that's how they saw it, which said, you know, from the Toronto Star saying, we can, we investigated two things. We investigated the relationships, and we also investigated how she was supported in the workplace. Uh-huh. They weren't told about that second thing, and in the emails that they offered to him, there's information about how she was supported in the workplace, namely the email which we quoted from where she says she was told by her manager that she didn't want to report Filson uh, based on the allegations of inappropriate and an, uh, an inappropriate relationship with Davenport because that could affect Davenport's career. It could harm her. So you reached out to John Hondra for comment and, and, and he responded. Did he deny any of this? I mean, the, I guess the specific allegation is that he was offered information. He, he, he didn't accept them. And he, the allegation is that he basically misrepresented the scope of the investigation. So I'm sure you gave him opportunity. Did he deny that? Or, or maybe not misrepresented that he omitted, you know, information. And, and it's possible that maybe they hadn't determined they were investigating that at the time, right? Because they announced... This was the week of the first week of June, and that email from Daly and Bauer went out on June fifteenth. So there's also the you know the remote possibility that the week after they decided to investigate whether or not she was you know well if a week later the, the scope of the investigation of course, were brought in, and Hendrick could have emailed back and said actually I'd like to see those emails. Well, and there's also just a broad question of if this supposedly was an independent investigation you know within the workplace and if it was being conducted by Daly and by Bauer why when someone approached him did Hondrick not simply say please contact Daly and Bauer please yeah. please speak to these men they're the ones conducting the investigation you know, th- and that's one of the more interesting questions about this you know the appropriate response may not have been here's what we are aren't investigating um, here's what we are aren't looking into here is what is and isn't germane the appropriate response may well have been here are the two individuals conducting the investigation speak with them they can determine whether or not the information you have either falls within the par view of what we're investigating or sheds light on something that we should investigate. Right. So out of all of these things he might have done, yes, please give me the emails. I'll send them to the right people. Or, oh, take those emails to the investigators. Or, oh, uh, I'll, I'll email you back a week later say, in fact, I do want those. Uh, you, you have been told he didn't do any of those things. Did he say otherwise? What, what was his response when you asked him about all this? Uh, we asked him the first time, and he gave a general answer, just saying, I received many emails and you know, considered them to be germane. Then we followed up with him and asked him very specifically again, and he replied back with that sentence that we have where he simply said that uh, the Toronto Star has no place in the bedrooms of consenting adults or something. It's was like it? a Pierre Trudeau it was, quote. Yeah, I think it was a paraphrasing of Pierre Trudeau. Aha. Um, uh-huh. 
And I mean, this is kind of a big. I, I don't mean to get like like you know lost on this this uh, specificity about what Hondrick did or didn't do, but this is kind of a big deal. Yeah, and, and it speaks to whether or not they were really trying to figure out what happened and, or, or not. I'm not sure about that, but I just I don't think you know I don't think the actual handoff of you know how the information was handed off or wasn't handed off is. The big controversy in this case, I think it's that it wasn't handed off, right? It never made it to the star. Right. And therefore, conceivably, the star conducted an investigation missing a key piece of information. I mean, if you're actually investigating this, you want that information. And in fact, the same person who first tried to go through official channels and give it to Hundrick, when they felt that this was not wanted by Hundrick, came to you with these, you, or provided them to you at some point. So you did read the emails that Hundrick did not receive, uh, or it seems did not receive. What's in them? Oh, as I said, the, you know, the most important thing that's in them is Ravina's claim that she was told by her manager after she brought to her this information about inappropriate relationships with the paper and after she brought to her this information about her being suicidal and considering these, you know, related workplace issues that her manager told her um, that she didn't want to report this because it could affect Jane Davenport, right? Because she liked Jane Davenport and she didn't want to interfere with Jane. So let's we're, we're throwing around a lot of names here, or, or in cases we're not. Let, 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 let's break this down. Her direct superior was an editor named uh, Lynn McCulley. Foreign editor of the paper, yes. Foreign editor of the paper, Lynn McCulley. The Toronto Star's internal investigation concluded that Lynn McCulley provided Ravina Olak with outstanding and exceptional levels of support and assistance. Is that true? To a certain extent, yes. Um, if you if you separate it between the personal and the professional, it's you know the answer is yes. And on the other side, it's more money. Personally, you know, from people I've a number of people we've spoken to, and from some you know emails and documents we've been to look at, Macaulay did you know actively work outside of her job and her responsibilities as a manager to repeatedly check up on Ravina after you know after she learned of her mental strife of you know what she was suffering from. Um, she you know she made sure she was eating. She made sure she was doing her laundry. All you know, all these things above and beyond, above and beyond the responsibilities of a manager. So you know, as a human being, there's a, a great degree of credit that goes there, which we mentioned. Uh, on the professional side, as a manager, um, which you think would be the, the central focus of the Toronto Star. That's, that's the chief concern here. Yes, is was how she was supported in the workplace. There, it's muddied and less clear. In you know, in mid May, Ravina says that all uh, that she was told by her manager not to say anything to her union about this. Uh-huh. Uh huh. That's a major concern. You, as a manager, you cannot you know you explicitly can't do that. If if employee wants to talk to a union about workplace strife, um, they they're entitled to. You're not allowed to and, discourage and, them. And second from... of all, you're not yeah. And second of all, you're not allowed to discourage them from doing that. Uh, and as well as what we just mentioned, also setting parameters for you know. A complaint based on wanting to protect one individual at the paper over another. Right. And just to revisit that, this was when Ravina was bringing up the possibility of talking about John Filson. She was going to her boss, Lynn McCulley, and saying, should, should, I'm willing to talk about this at a higher level. Uh, and Lynn McCulley said, well, this I like Jane Davenport. And I'm not willing to do that unless John Filson makes somebody else miserable and Jane defends. So there's basically saying because of my personal fondness for one of the people implicated in this, I'm not willing to kick this up the chain unless it gets worse. That was Macaulay's response to that. According to Ravina, yes. According to Ravina. Um, the point of this is not to uh, vilify or demonize Lynn Macaulay. Uh, and, and I think it is definitely must be really thoroughly stated, uh, as you did, that she, as a human being to another human being, uh, knowing that her friend Ravina was feeling suicidal, d- went uh, outside of the office and did everything she could to support her. But 
in, in the context of a professional investigation, you're trying to say, we have things in place. We have a union that's supposed to deal with these things, and, and the union might only get involved if it can't be dealt with internally. And internally, we have uh, senior people you can talk to. So when something tragic like this happens, you, you do have to go back and ask, were there opportunities? And the fact that it's not like Lynn McCulley didn't care. She obviously cared a great deal. But the fact that she was willing to do all of these things outside of the office, but none of the things you're supposed to do inside of the office – raises questions about why she was unwilling to do those things. Why wouldn't she pull those levers that might have made a difference? I think that that's crucial. And, and yeah, and the biggest concern being that there appear to have been both professional and labor-related, you know, barricades to her getting the complaints that, you know, she could have gotten out out. Um, and, you know, and as well, you, of course, have to say as well there were, you know, her, you know, her own conflicts herself, right? Because as she, as she expressed in those weeks, she she too kind of went, went back and forth as to how public she wanted information to be. Did anyone besides Ravina Alak raise concerns with Lynn McCauley about John Filson? According to Lynn McCauley herself, yes. She wrote in an email, which we published, that three other managers made unrelated complaints, she says. So she says unrelated to his, quote, preying on interns. Three other managers. And to your issues. Yeah, she said three other managers came to me and asked how he can be stopped. Or her I mean, that's dra- how he can be stopped. You well, know, but it's, it's no. dramatic. Sure. But remember in that email, Macaulay says it's unrelated to preying on interns and unrelated to your issues. So how so can some are, other nebulous behavior you know, be stopped? These could be bullying. These could be okay. you know, the other things. That were. And then did anyone outside of the Toronto Star know anything about John Filson's behavior? Yes. Um, the student university newspaper, Ryerson, the eye-opener, had received two complaints um, dating back to 2008 uh, about inappropriate behavior, you know, one of which, um, sorry, two of which actually are mentioned in this story, which they were aware of. And so the general manager of that paper, who's been there since the 1990s, you know, has been mentoring and involved with, just, you know, particularly young women journalists uh, for a very long time. Uh, yeah, told to us that they received two complaints and thereafter either warned or instructed students accordingly to, be, you know, to either, you know, be watchful of him in the workplace uh, or to govern themselves if they got a star internship, you know. With that information in mind, they're sending young women to the star and having to warn them: be, be careful of this John Filson character. We've heard things about him. Sure, that sounds like more action than the star ever took. Um, yes, it is, and it's also you know conflicts with. Again, you know, I can't emphasize enough that this isn't a Gomeshi case. But you know, this, I mean, the, as you recall, the star wrote, and and if we're talking about just you know inappropriate sexual conversations and advances on interns. Um, that occurred at the CBC in you know in post two thousand ten, yeah. and the Toronto Star wrote about how Western University knew about this, while the CBC didn't. And in an op-ed, the Star's editorial board said, "If Western University figured this out, how could CBC management not have figured it out?" The Star asked that question of the CBC. Yes, I think it's fair for us to ask that question of the Star. Again, to this question of confidentiality, Lynn McCauley uh, declined uh, to comment to you uh, or to answer these questions. She said that she understood her communications with Ravina to be confidential. That was her understanding of her communications with Ravina about her personal problems. Did Ravina, to your knowledge, swear Lynn McCauley to secrecy? Uh, Lynn McCauley says she did. Ravina, in an email, when asked directly and explicitly about that by a colleague, she and a colleague in an email chain were discussing A, the inappropriate relationships with the paper, which are a workplace matter, and B, the you know her being having you know suicidal and mental health strife as a result of it he asked her you know i don't know when you told these things uh, you know to ravina whether you swore her to secrecy or not they used that exact word she replied 
Um, I think it's quote, no, I did not swear Lynn to secrecy was her exact, you know, that was her immediate response. Uh-huh. So, you know, again, that's conflicted. And we don't know whether the star had access to these emails or obtained them or not, and whether they factored into the, you know, the ruling that they made that A, she was supported, you know, her, the support for her was outstanding, and that B, the company did everything it could have done. Yeah. I mean, we're just eroding and eroding the idea that this was just a private matter between three people more and more. Uh, so, so the Ryerson knew about this. Did the union did, did the union know about these issues before before Ravina's death? A senior source, a tour star that we spoke to, claimed that the investigation which they conducted, which the company conducted, determined that two members of the union executive were aware at least of the inappropriate relationships. Um, however, you have to remember too that those union executives are newsroom colleagues. Um, and they can't bring forward a complaint unless the employee brings a complaint to them, right? As as a union, if she was discouraged by her manager from making a formal complaint to the union or told not to say anything to the union, then that muddies this even more, right? I mean, they may have known personally, but she may also have been instructed not to make a formal complaint to them. I'm not sure I understand. Oh, I mean, it's possible they, they knew too and perhaps could have intervened. It's but, possible that the union knew too and could have intervened. A senior source of the star tells you that two people of the union did know. That's what their investigation found, yes. That's what the Toronto Star's own investigation found. That's what they claim, yeah. So your source is somebody who's privy to the Toronto Star's internal investigation? Yes. That's interesting. Turning to the wider question of the star and how much of this is starting to paint a picture of the star, the union is calling for this independent investigation. The first investigation was done you know, by the star of the star. The union like, explicitly says, we, we believe you've got a toxic culture. And it should be noted they want a third-party independent investigation. Right. Torstar, you know, says that because this investigation was conducted by the company HR, which is outside of the newsroom, that it constitutes an independent it's investigation. It's independent enough. Um, uh-huh. Whereas, yeah, the union says it should be a third-party investigation. And the union also says, you guys have a toxic culture, and we, and we want to look into that. Uh, Michael Cook and John Hondrick say, we don't agree with you that we have a toxic culture. However, they did say that they have since heard concerns that, you know, that, that raise right. uh, they issues say, with them. Which I guess they would say, well, yeah, just because you've got problems doesn't mean you've got a toxic culture. Sure. Right? In your investigation, did anything you find lend support to the idea that this isn't just about one rotten apple, that there is a larger cultural problem? Did anyone else feel that way who you spoke to? Is, 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 is there a larger story here about the Toronto Star's newsroom culture? There is simply because a union of employees making that kind of allegation at a company is particularly striking, not something that you hear every day. And the union of employees would be privy to far more information about the workplace than any of us would be. In two other cases, yes, because one of the individuals who we spoke to who said, you know, John Filson was actually a good editor. He was a guy who, who pushed me, who made me do better stories. Um, however, you know, they didn't deny that there was any, that this wasn't an issue in the star workplace. They said, you know, he was not the worst. Um, that this, you know, that this goes out, this extends out to other parts of the organization. Uh-huh. Um, it, they, you know, they were only speaking generally and didn't go into specifics with us. And then we had a second person who said, you know, morale here is incredibly low in the newsroom, and that is because of. Uh, you know, the general environment, um, you, know, you know, beyond just what's happened in the last few months. I got your article here. I, I think you're referring to this source. And, and the quote is, the issue is a toxic work environment in which sex and power are major pollutants. Correct. That, that's what one of your sources said. And it's that would be a current staffer. That's a current staffer. I, I don't even think we have to necessarily turn to like anonymous sources to, to get that sense. It's actually something concerned me that was published in the Toronto Star itself in the wake of, of uh, Ravina Alec's death by uh, their veteran 
columnist Joe Fiorito. Now, you quoted Fiorito because he was writing about this, and he was kind of writing about it a bit uh, indirectly. It was obvious that he was writing He's writing about, you know, well, th- what you quoted him for saying is something to the effect of, we need to get our own house in order before we fling mud at others. Fair enough. There's something else he said in that same column. Uh, I'm going to read to you from it. But here is a lesson to the young and a caution to all. Don't fool around with your colleagues, either up or down the ladder. The results are rarely good, and when things go wrong, one person always suffers more than the other. And at work, all suffering is public. Don't ask me about the duty of managers to manage. I have no comment. What does that tell you about the the fact that the Toronto Star, a, a senior member of the Stars team, would would direct this criticism at the young and this warning to the young, and the fact that the Toronto Star would publish this? I feel like there's something worth looking at there. I don't know that he was. I don't think that's a criticism he was directing at the young. No, it's a warning. You're, um, you're quite right. Yeah, I think it's a credit to Joe. I mean, he was, you know, he addressed it vaguely, of course, but still, you know, made a note of it, and, and perhaps was doing so with consideration of Ravina's wishes. You know, the, the paper itself, and I think the Star, in terms of what it has published, I think has been really respectful. Uh, you know, a week after sort of the union story broke, they did a very nice roundup of her best work, things like that. No, but hold on a second. Because he has explicit, an explicit bit of fatherly advice to young people. Don't fool around at work. Uh, the results are rarely good. And when things go wrong, one person's going to suffer more than the other. And I think the implication is clear and it's, it's borne out. Uh, when things go bad, it's never the senior most. It's, it's usually not the guy who's out the door. It's usually the young intern who uh, was involved, who uh, their, their prospects dry up. So, sure. he, so he's, he's, he's saying, yeah. and, and, maybe, and you might consider that good advice, but he feels like he's in a position to give that advice explicitly, tell them what to do. When it comes to his advice for managers, don't ask me about the duty of managers to manage. I have no comment. I think he's rather like cheekily saying, I have no comment about the manager's responsibility in this, but I am going to tell young people to take responsibility for their actions and not get into these affairs because it's not going to work out well for them and they're going to suffer. They're going to suffer worse than the superiors. But as for the managers, don't ask me about that. I have no comment. Sure. That's send a chill up my spine. Yeah. And you and with respect to managers having responsibility, you can say that. Macaulay was told about the inappropriate relationships and her suicidal feelings by mid-May. Filson himself, who, remember, was still a senior manager at the paper, was told in a May 2nd email that she was suicidal and that it was a result of what she believed were inappropriate relationships in the workplace. Um, He, too, as a senior manager, would have had an obligation, when when that's told to him in email, to take it to superiors, to take it to HR, to to, to raise an issue like that. And then we each, we don't, you know, we don't know the, the extent to what he knew, but a third senior manager, at least, Paul Woods, according to a luck in an email, was at the very least aware that her uh, previous sick leave she had taken, uh, you know, because of some of the issues around this, was related to Filson. So at the very least there, you have three senior managers at the paper who all at least had parts of this story, in two cases, the entire story. um, And, you know, nothing actionable appears to have been taken. You know, we can't say for sure, of course. Um, It's possible things were in play. But, but, you know, it doesn't appear that anything actionable was taken until after the week that she passed away. If Fiorito felt a little bit more uh, empowered to talk about the responsibility of managers, he might have a lot to say. You know, you, you of course, went to Michael Cook, the editor-in-chief. He called your allegations vague, uh, the allegations from these sources, who are his own employees, past and present. He called them vague, and he's not going to respond to them because they're vague. And I would say in one, like, particularly in the first case, a sexual and romantic relationship with an intern, having sex with an intern 
being in a romantic relationship with an intern. And who is your That is not vague in any respect. The name of the intern was known to Michael Cook, yes? It's in an email sent on Star Servers. Okay. Um, so, you know, those, those allegations, that allegation is not at all vague. Um, the, we, you know, and I would say that also we provided Cook with names in our questions because it's mentioned in emails for more specificity than we did publish. The allegation that, you know, of verbal harassment and verbal abuse and, and things like that, you know, that, that, that deal with bullying and harassment. I mean, those are almost always commonly vague anyway, right? Because yeah. that's what... Uh, you know, that's what they are. Okay, right? so, so I, you you take issue with his description of but, these allegations. Well, and then uh, the most recent allegations of in the last year of having inappropriate sexual relationships with two different women in the newsroom that weren't reported. Yeah. I mean, those are incredibly specific, I, I, you know. But to those, he, he says, well, yeah, but those three people, one of them's dead and two of them don't work in the newsroom anymore. So I, I, I what I read from his response to you, and, and he concludes, the Star's HR department, not newsroom management. So I think he's trying to assert some independence here that it wasn't his team that investigated. It was the Star's independent HR HR wing, they conducted an inquiry into matters involving these individuals and appropriate actions were taken. Sean, I read from Cook's response to you that he's eager to move on, that uh, he feels that they've they've done their investigation, they've answered your questions as much as they're willing to, and uh, they want to put this behind them. Is this behind them? Is there more journalism? You know, when you're investigating something like this, there are there's stuff gets kicked up that goes beyond this particular case. Other leads come up. And everybody who feels like they've had something to say about this topic starts to come forward. I can tell you that here at Canada Land, we've had people come forward uh, with some information about the star in the wake of your investigation. And uh, I want to know from your perspective, do you think that this story is tied up with a bow or if we're going to be reading more about this? Yeah, absolutely. As, as it's hinted in our story and as a number of people say in there, they believe there are wider issues at the paper. The union believes there's wider issues at the paper. So if any of that information does come to us or if any of the information that has come to us um, that we haven't reported becomes firmed up, and if it is in the public interest, then sure, we'll report it. That is your Canada Land Show. You can email me about it anytime at jesse at canadalandshow.com. I read everything you send me. I respond when I can. We are on Twitter at CanadaLand. Our website, where we have news stories going up all the time, is CanadaLandShow.com. Our crowdfunding site is Patreon.com slash CanadaLand. On Wednesday, the next episode of The Imposter will be out. On Thursday, Shortcuts. I make this show with Katie Jensen. This show is syndicated for free to community and campus radio stations across this country. We're 28 stations, and that side of things is handled by Russell Gregg. If you like what we do, Please support us. In France, in the 13th century, a teenager ascends the throne. He seems calm, collected, and as it happens, drop-dead gorgeous. But looks can be deceiving, and no one is ready for the death, destruction, and chaos that lie ahead. Step inside the reign of one of the Middle Ages' most cold-blooded rulers on This Is History Presents The Iron King. Available wherever you get your podcasts. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. This is Roundabout Season 2, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops. If we're stopping to get gas, you will be timed. 
<laughs> Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have like, you know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. <laughs> this was like wilderness. A lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, yeah, you, you were different. Like you were real different, bro. I can't really put my finger on it. And so much more. Just goes to show that unexpected yeah. things sometimes are the best when it comes to a road trip. Roundabout Season 2, presented by Nissan, is live now with new episodes rolling out every Thursday. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.